the danger we have moving forward now from 2016 forward is not outsiders it's not other country it's not our, it's not going to be our biggest problem our biggest problem in america in the united states of america is from within we are our own cancer and our own problems. And until we get that understood and understood we've become a cancer inside of ourselves, we're going we're gonna to undo ourselves from the inside out. Do you agree with that, Jennifer? I completely do. And I think they have the, the thing with the Muslim Brotherhood, because sometimes we look at these guys as just Middle Easterners. They can't possibly know what we know. We just know more. They're actually extremely brilliant. The Muslim Brotherhood has been around forever for the last 30 years. They've been planning the destruction of America for the last 100 years. And 30 years ago, we got their plans for America. We know them and we've still ignored that. They've not only put put their own players and their tied people within the U.S. government, but they're all over state governments, local governments, both political parties and they have numerous front organizations. We've seen the explosion of refugees in Europe and the controversy that ensued here in the States. It was one of the big issues in the 2016 election, safe haven for Syrian refugees and how to vet them. Well, let's Malcolm all out here. This was a big conversation in the election. And, you know, some people feel it was blown out of proportion. Other people feel, are we doing our, our duty? Uh, it, there's a lot of complexities to this conversation, friends. And it depends where you fall. You know, the aisle has, seems to have gotten narrower and narrower from the left to the right. Uh, the extremists I'm speaking about here. But really, you look at our history as a country and where's the answer? How do we look at this? So what I want to talk to you about in this next segment is I want to talk to you about some pretty heavy things like, you know, we talk about terrorism. It's become part of our vocabulary today. Uh, what about genocide? Is that something that comes to your mind quickly? Probably not. So we're going to touch on that today. Genocide versus terrorism. What, what does that mean? What are the differences? And then our guest today as well, she's got four specific areas that she believes President-elect Donald Trump needs to focus on when he is sworn in it, it, tied to this subject matter today we're going to uh, discuss with her. So I'd like you to meet now Jennifer Breeden. She's a legal analyst and attorney specializing in international criminal law and First Amendment laws as well. She's a human rights, uh, she addresses human rights issues around the world. And you know, I'm passionate about all of that too, as I think we all should be. She provides legal analysis for areas such as international criminal law, human rights, and religious extremism. All the fun things, Jennifer. How are you today? I'm doing well, Malcolm. Thanks for having me on. That's a heavy, that's a heavy uh, intro, you know. <laughs> it, it really is. Even when I hear it, I think, oh, yikes. Yeah, it's big. But it's important. It's, it's big stuff that you're doing here so all right i want to uh, let, let's start here there's a lot of conversation we're going to have ahead here so let, let's talk and let's try to bring uh, what i'd like to do is bring a real perspective to folks so they get a sense of what you're talking about you're you know you're uh, in a different position than most people jennifer because this is something you live and you you studied you research you know it's your profession so you're going to be able to add a, a pretty good perspective to it Yes. One of the things that caught my attention within the conversation we were having with the publicist and all was this line that says she is a staunch advocate of allowing refugees safe haven in the United States. Now, you don't normally see it put that way. I haven't. I haven't seen that. And I thought, okay, we got to talk to Jennifer and see what's going on, man. What does she know? What has she got? So let's talk. Let's. I know we start with the good stuff, but there it is. There's the crux of it. Talk to me on 
exactly what that means to folks, please. Sure. And, and and again, you know, you see that and people will get one thing because like you said, it's become an aisle issue. It's become so incredibly politically polarized and it doesn't need to be. And so what people assume and mostly, you know, the mainstream U.S., what we assume is that we hear the word refugee, we immediately think ISIS Muslim terrorist coming over. And so they equate refugees coming over with ISIS and Muslim terrorists that would come over. And that's exactly what people think. That's people I've spoken to, uh, many people. And it's a lot of what the election was about. And what they don't understand um, is what the what is actually happening in the refugee situation. There are a couple things. First, is that the United States State Department is in charge of the refugee kind of resettlement process and everything like that. It's about a two and a half year process is where it starts to, to vet. Um, again, I, I think all vetting can be done better, but it starts within a UN refugee camp in one of these areas where these people have left their homes, escaped, and go to a camp. It's mostly women, children, families are looked at first. And then the U.S., be, uh, based on our laws, we start to vet these families, it takes about two and a half years. So that's the first issue right there is that you're looking at a very lengthy vetting process where these people have to wait. They're looking at which people are single mothers that have children or things like that. Um, the second part is, and, and since the refugee issue starts in the UN refugee camps, what's actually been happening in some of these camps is that because of bias or because you know people are, are chosen from that specific country to run these camps and the UN just doesn't have the resources in their refugee area to have security measures, those like the Christians and and the Yazidis and the main victims, a lot of the minorities are either turned away from the refugee camps or they're actually told you're going to be in more danger in this camp because there might be some fundamentalist ideologies here. You know, there are, even if the U.S. itself is going to bring refugees over with that are families, women and children, that doesn't mean that in within those refugee camps, there are still young single men or there are still men that are going to discriminate and oppress Christians and Yazidis minorities. And so most of the people that are actually the victims of, as you had said, genocide and, and a lot of the persecution and violence are kind of protecting each other outside of the UN refugee camps. So when it when it comes to this discussion, the US right now isn't doing anything to help the actual victims of genocide in coming over as refugees, but we need to be considering that as well. Now, when they're turned away from these camps, some of these people, what happens? What what is what happens to their life? What do they just live on the street? Is that it? Well, yeah, and I can speak to Iraq. I can speak to northern Iraq. And so in Erbil and in Kurdistan area, which we know has kind of become a safe zone because it's protected by the Peshmerga and the, the Kurdish forces um, against ISIS, that's kind of where these UN refugee camps are. And so what happens is they're turned away and they go into the mountains. Uh, a lot of times they go towards where the Peshmerga is, the Kurdish forces who have been protecting them against ISIS. And they are using these Kurdish forces as kind of a, a guard. And they just make up makeshift camp areas. We actually saw one of those. Clarion has a new film called Faith Keepers. It's coming out where we went into one of these makeshift camp areas where it's Christian, Yazidis, a couple of the Kurds. They're kind of living amongst each other in the mountains and just fending for themselves is what's happening there. Jennifer, tell folks about the Clarion Project. Let's 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 interject this at this moment because you just mentioned the Clarion Project and I didn't mention that in your talking points on the income in the intro. Tell folks about the Clarion Project, please. Sure. So the Clarion Project was started in 2006 with a movie called Obsession. It started as a, um, we're a filmmaking organization primarily, and we make films or documentaries that just really uh, highlight what's going on in terms of radical um, Islamic extremism and, and and kind of the threats of that around the world. And um, we so we challenge extremism through these films. And, and as the years kind of went on and film after film was released, we started becoming more of an analytical organization to work around the world as you do with your listeners, but to really 
really try to touch on the forces um, that are that are not only dangerous or a threat, because we have many of those in the U.S., but one of the things the Clarion Project does is we promote dialogue. So we actually provide a stage and a platform for the Muslim reformist movement. This is a movement not many people know about. It's differentiated from the term moderate Muslim, but it's a Muslim reformist movement. It's a very small group of people that are now speaking out and saying, we are against Sharia law, all forms of it. We are against violence. We're against jihad. We're against a full burqa. You know, we believe there's a lot more freedom. And so people like Raheel Raza, Dr. Judy Jasser, we, we give them a platform to speak out about against these kinds of things. And we look into these human rights issues. And so that's what the Clarion Project does. Very interesting. And and you, you, you've been in, quite involved in them. This has become, I mean, it's probably taken over your life, hasn't it? Oh, it definitely does. And I think that's a decision that most people in my line of work kind of make at one point, maybe in their late 20s, is that, you know, I might not be able to have a family for a bit, but, you know, it's worth it because this is my family. This is my work. Right. This is your life's work right now that you're doing and you're pursuing. So let's break it down. There's a lot of pieces to what you just said and the bigger problem at this. Okay, the refugees we're talking about, we have Europe on one side, Jennifer, that has taken on uh, uh, many of these refugees in Europe uh, throughout Europe. That's been very, very controversial. It, it, play, it was a factor that played into the Brexit, the exit of the United Kingdom. Uh, part of that was a safe haven, these uh, refugees and many of the uh, immigrants that were coming to these countries. The fact that they felt it was out of control, they couldn't vet it. It was one of the big issues, I think, that played into the psyche, the psyche mm-hmm. of people. They were concerned that young men were mixed in with the others and there could be some problem areas in there uh, because that's how a lot of these, uh, uh, these uh, terrorists organizations were trying to infiltrate, if you will, uh, Western society. What do you say to that? Is that what's the truth in that? Well, and, and, and you're right that that is what played into the psyche. And so, you know, one of the things we look at, as I stated, that, yes, the U.N. Refugee Resettlement Agency is co- who goes through the process, but the rules on who comes into a country or a place are, are by that country. And so the United States, we have our State Department that does it. Like I said, that's a two and a half year process. Now, let's look at Europe, for example. I'll look at Europe mainland first. Um, the, the laws in European countries are much more relaxed, and that's why so much, so many more were going over there. It was much more well, kind of liberal. That, Jennifer, and you have open borders there. And then in Germany, exactly. Germany decided to do complete open borders. And that's really what happened, because once you get into Germany, it's free for all crossing. Yeah. Now, I want to tell you, you bring up Germany. It's a great point. I mean, France has seen a lot of problems from this. Germany Mm -hmm. seen a lot of these European countries that we love and respect are having some real challenges. But Germany, for instance, I believe, and and I'd like you to just comment on this a moment, because I'm curious as to your thinking. But based on what you just said, which I agree with, I think that uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, I mean, I always like some of her style up front and the way she, you know, when the European Union came together and she was a real leader up front. But I think her best days are behind her. I think she's in a lot of trouble uh, within Germany itself and within the European Union. And I think her uh, power is going to be dis- diminished uh, and probably already has been considerably. What do you say to that? I I say you're right. And it actually has been diminished. I I think that um, much of the population of Germany would agree with you as well. I've spoken to a lot of people, a lot of our contacts over there that really just show that. I mean, she did start as a great leader. And because of this, rather than retracting that, admitting that was a mistake, she has um, continually doubled down on this and then refused to comment about some of the dangers they're facing now. See, that's well said. Well said. And, And I haven't heard anybody say that quite right, but that's what I believe, Jennifer. And I think that's what's happened. 
that she's doubled down. She's not commented on these obvious things that have happened. And she's really irritated a lot of people. And let's face it, she's created a very hostile environment there. The way there was really no vetting going on at all. It was sort of like just, yeah, come on in. You know, (laughs) you don't have to worry and grab $200. Just pass the Monopoly board, man. That's exactly Right. They were coming by the tens of thousands, man. You know, that's it. That's exactly right. And, And it's like you said, you know, even there, you see all of this polarization. And what happens is that these people that just want to say, no, it's freedom. We're not going to go against a religion. We're not going to vet people. People deserve to be free. I mean, there has to be a middle ground there. And when you when you delete a middle ground, whether it's on the right or the left extreme, then you're you're opening yourself up and it's going to be both sides coming at you from every way. And you just can't do that. That's why we have to maintain an honest conversation with a middle ground. Okay, so back to the vetting, uh, the two and a half year cycle. I, I, I get that. I buy that. I understand what you're saying. Now, so the conversation I was hearing over and over and over here that no matter about the two and a half year cycle or not, mm-hmm. that there was no way we could really properly vet these people, that that there were so many unknowns in the Middle East, that you, there was just no... Uh, infrastructure to vet these people properly. And so we were taking a really, really big chance. What do you say to that? Well, and I, I think there is some truth to that. So this kind of brings up two points. The first is that um, in the United States itself, and over the last eight years of the last administration, even actually it started in um, Bush 43 administration, was the fact that we stopped wanting to look at um, religion. We stopped wanting to look at, quote, Islam. And so that means if you're looking at Hadith, Sharia, like 10,000 other forms besides the Quran, um, that that we just don't want to look into that. So if we see that they're studying a certain Hadith or a certain thing, we just say that's religion, we will not look at it. So what's happened is that we've now made our law enforcement and some of our officials from the federal level not be able to look at any of that, not be able to look at mosques, not be able to, to look at some of these things that are more extremist. Whereas, as I said with Clarion Project, we work with reformist Muslims who say that's the first thing you need to look at. You need to see what it is they're studying. And so when you talk about the vetting here, yes, you know they can go through this long, lengthy process, but you're completely right in that we have actually now set up over the last 10 years or so in the U.S. Um, a system where we don't know how to vet because we don't allow our law enforcement to do that. And that starts from the highest levels. And so if we're looking at somebody, we're going to, they've actually called that this, the countering violent extremism uh, facet of the federal government. They actually have Islamists, more extremist people that have set up those rules and guidelines over the last 10 years, bringing them in in the name of, you know, equality without actually vetting even them. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we get our homeland security in order, our federal government in order, and we know which voices to prop up and which to not. And, and that's, I think, the biggest thing. So you're you're right that there is a sense where we can't vet. And more than that, we can't even investigate um, people that are in our own country that were born here right. because we refuse to look at certain things like, quote, religion. What do you think about the concept that has been repeated that, OK, let's not bring all these tens of thousands of refugees into the states at this point of time, but let's invest into safe haven back in their their homelands, their countries where they come from and where they're destined to be. Are you supporter of that or what do you think of that? 
Um, I am. And again, there's, you know, there's always caveats on that. And so there's actually a bill that's being proposed in Congress. I was up in D.C. when it was first proposed. It's called the Nineveh Plains Province Bill. And this is a bill that kind of sets up a safe haven in the area of Mosul, but around the Nineveh Plains. This is a place where Christians, Yazidis and Kurds all worked together. They lived amongst um, different kinds of Muslims. And there was this tapestry of faiths and cultures in that area of Mosul and the Nineveh Plains area that ISIS took over. And so as Mosul is now being retaken by Iraqi forces and by coalition forces, you know, the question is what's going to happen? There's going to be yet another vacuum in this huge city that was once a tapestry. And to be honest, when I've spoken with Christians that are in Iraq and with Yazidis, they do want to stay there. They don't want to lose that that historical foundation of their faith, which is in that area. And so, you know, I do support that. I support that safe haven because the whole purpose of the Nineveh Plains Provinceville in D.C. is to say, let's create a safe haven so that the minorities can come back and start to recreate their lives and then to bring the majority Muslim populations that want to inter exist with them so that we maintain that tapestry. I do support that in terms of waiting for the refugees and that uh, and coming over here. You know, there can be temporary programs, but it's like we said with the Christians and Yazidis. I was actually in Canada. The Canadians right now are arguing a bill that they're going to bypass the UN refugee resettlement, take their military in and go and protect the victims of genocide, Yazidis and Christians first and bring them in as refugees before they start to consider um, the vast majority of Muslims with a vetting system. See, a lot of people are not really understanding and they're not really buying into this uh, conversation and point of genocide. Now, when we use a word like genocide, we're not throwing that word around casual, casually. And, you know, you say it and you say in some of your write-ins that I have seen here, Jennifer, and I do believe now, listen, as opposed to others who have not believed or endorsed this idea that this is really a genocide going on, mm-hmm. um, if you really study this properly, rather than the quick talking points in, in much of the media, mm-hmm. it really and truly is a genocide. And mm-hmm. I have been on that page as well, that I think it's it's um, it's it's against humanity what's going on. It's and it's something that has happened in our in in you know, let's face it, in Earth's Earth's history before. We've seen this uh, game before, if you will, uh, in humanity. And now uh, there are points of genocide that are happening in this part of the world. And I don't think Americans really understand what that means, Jennifer. I don't think they really. I think you can look back at the history books, you know, uh, 20, 30 years from now, and okay, maybe it's documented then, but Mm -hmm. I think it's happening right now. And I think we're kind of many, I think most actually, I'd like to know if you disagree with me, but I think most are in denial on that point. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You're 100% on the money. And that's one of the things, you know, that was the very first international um, criminal legal concept that I studied in depth. I mean, day in and day out. And so genocide was a term that was coined after right after World War II, a man named Raphael Lemkin talked about this term of genocide, which then created the Hague tribunals that they were able to try Nazi war criminals. So when I started to research the history of this term, it was the very first thing to be um, to become an international law by the new United Nations in 1948, I believe it was. Um, It was one of the first things it was called the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Um, What people actually think, and you said that we're in denial, what people think is that in order for there to be genocide, 10 million people have to have been killed, and then we call it a genocide. But think about the the justice in that, or the justification in that. That means there's actually one of the most serious crimes of all time, the crime to which all other crimes are built out of, the worst humanitarian or human rights crisis ever, is contingent on the fact that we have to wait until 10 million people die. Absolutely not. The definition, even in 1940, 
1848 was the intent to destroy in whole or in part an entire national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. That is a genocide. The only word there is intent. It is a specific intent crime. It has nothing to do with numbers. It is an intent as the only international crime where you don't have to wait for a number to be met. You have to look at whether there is implicit or really explicit intent and action perpetuated in furtherance of that intent to make sure that those people are eliminated. So when you look at ISIS alone, they went around and they burned, destroyed millions of churches. They actually burned history books, secular history books that talked about the history of Christianity and you know other religious minorities in Iraq. They burned those books to really eliminate from the very core that group. Uh, yet I know, I, I know. And, you know, y- y- you say this and yet, you know, what's happened with this ISIS group, Jennifer, and what, what is so disturbing is that, you know, if you're if you're walking through an open field in that area of the world and you see these mass graves where they put huh, tens of thousands of people, mm-hmm. what the hell do you call that? It's a genocide. Exactly. Exactly. And it and I mean, that was the main thing of that. It's you're right, because it's you're going now to a place where they targeted a specific group. And so these these mass graves that you've talked about, these are either in Yazidi towns or Christian areas where they went in there. They targeted a group of people that said, because of who you are, we need to eliminate all of you. And that's exactly what the Nazis did in World War Two with the Jews. They're mass graves of Jews. They targeted them based on what they are. That's genocide, plain and simple. Yeah. I, I mean, to come up with a 10 million number, I think is ridiculous. I mean, who Whoever's doing that, it, I mean, that, that just comes or just from, any number. Yeah, that, exactly. That just, yeah, that just comes from the stupid farm. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody who's buying into that is doesn't, I mean, they're not intellectually looking at this thing. I no. mean, you know, you start seeing these mass graves. Just recently, there were some uncovered when they got back into some of these cities, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's what they're doing. And, and you'd be surprised. I mean, it wouldn't be that surprising to find out that all the people, if they were ever to identify the people in these mass graves, that they all belong to one religious class or to religious class that ISIS has vehemently objected to and wants to destroy. And that's exactly what it, it looks at. And I think one of the reason that politicians and people in general are in denial of this is because, especially politicians, is because, you know, there imposes a legal duty on a country that, that admits that there's a genocide. That country, that government now has an international duty to protect and prevent genocide. That was the whole purpose of genocide was to prevent future genocides. You look at the intent. Gosh, is there a group out there that wants to completely eradicate an entire racial, religious, or national group? Then yeah, we need to protect those people and prevent it. And so when we declared on March 17th, and John Kerry, the Secretary of State, declared that you know United States believes that ISIS is carrying out a genocide against Christians and Yazidis in Iraq and Syria, we immediately had an international legal duty to protect those victims, whatever that meant, whether it was creating a safe haven for them, providing resources or bringing them here, protect them and then prevent it. And we're not doing that. All right. Based on where we're at right now and everything you've just said, and now that we've got folks up to speed on what's really going on and we understand the difference between genocide and terrorism and we understand some of the particulars here, let's do this here now. Correct me on this. President Obama, I, I believe the number is about, is it about 10,000 that he has brought in of refugees? Is that Yes, about yeah. 10,000. So approximately 10,000. So everyone understands about 10,000 refugees have already are calling our country home at this moment. Right now, I understand, again, from the talking points, that Hillary Clinton wanted to bring it, and I could have this number wrong. I know you know what the number is. I was hearing between fifty and 60,000. Is that correct? 
Yes, I um the last number I had heard was about sixty thousand, but the, it's varied. I think um I think you know it's it's varied a little bit. But it's you know five six hundred times what he had done already. Obviously, right? Significant, whatever it is, and uh, and we were hearing a lot of that, um, and then that became sort of an election conversation that sort of was on the fringes of it because I don't think a lot of people were really paying attention to that. You know, the problem is, I think most people have short memories, Jennifer, and until something happens and it's explosive in our country, we seem to learn the lessons late and sometimes too late before we react instead of being really looking at this thing up front and, you know, really doing a whiteboard on it in advance and saying, OK, this is what we got. This is the problem. How are we going to fix this? Now, what I want to ask you is back to Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump has said, no way, no way. We, we know his talking points on the whole Muslim ban. And, mm-hmm. and But I do want to say, he was talking about, uh, just so we keep everything in context, please, because I hate this mm-hmm. when media people take this all out of context, Jennifer, you know? Uh, it's yes. ridiculous. The context that Donald Trump had put it in, by the way, was, and, and listen to me, friends, was a temporary ban. Let's make sure you understand what that word temporary meant. It was a temporary <laughs> ban on, on, on from some of these well, what he considered radical countries, mm-hmm. uh, that was the conversation. And it was uh, so we could understand what was going on. He just felt the Obama administration was out of control, and more specifically, that Hillary Clinton would be as commander in chief. Now, when all that was coming down in the election, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but actually, I do want to put you on the spot. So. Sure. That's what I'm here for. I'm exactly. here to be on the spot. So I'll qualify that a moment so listeners know it's coming. Malcolm's going there. So let me ask you, where did you fall in that conversation with you had Obama on one side, what he had done already, where Clinton was and what she was suggesting, what Trump had said, which we knew became a hell of a talking point in the election and almost almost cut his election off at the knees. What was your viewpoint in all of that, please? Well, and I'll be completely honest, from my humanity viewpoint, you know, in human rights, the very first initial one was probably the same as many Americans, which was, you know, uh, you can't do that. That's, you know, going against an entire religious group, even if it's just temporary, you can't do that. That's going to create all sorts of chaos. But then um, the more I got into my work and the jobs that, that, that the job that I do now, I work with the national security analyst, and this is what we kind of try to look at. And I saw this, started to see our federal government and the failures that we have, um, not only allowing extreme Islamists, these are Muslim Brotherhood tied people who are trying to strip us away of our freedom of speech in the United States. We have absolutely no idea what we're doing. And until that happens, we have to we have to figure something out. Because if we don't, it's kind of like it's kind of like if there's a leak in your in your you know house, and rather than calling somebody to fix the small leak, you run every faucet in your house. So, and and you can't do that. So having said that, I, I want to follow this up in just a second with something, but You're saying, I think, that you sort of, kind of, from a safety logistical standpoint, you sort of kind of lean toward more of where, I don't want to, where Trump was? More where more where Trump was, I think, and and right. I think it's because it's practical in the sense of needing to fix what we have the people here. I All think right. of the Orlando shooter, you know, right. we he lived here. All right, that that makes me actually feel pretty good right now. That I mean, I I actually because uh, I'm I endorse that one million percent. So mm-hmm. I, that actually make I didn't think your answer was going to be that, and I'm really thrilled to see that happen that way because. I think if we don't, if we're not careful at this point of our own safety and security in this country, and if we continue to be careless and reckless uh, without forethought here, we're going to pay a big price for this, Jennifer. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the reasons that I, I allow that talking point to, to be out there, which is that I, I agree with the refugee situations because I want to talk about Christians and Yazidis. You don't have to worry about vetting extremists, ones of those, if you're going to bring them over, if you want to have that conversation about helping people. But we absolutely need to fix what's going on here first. All right. So so back to the whole vetting thing. Is it and, and here's a a kind of a big question, and I don't know if you can really answer this, but I'm going to ask it. Within this whole vetting process, Jennifer, in, in vetting all of this, you know, the, the thing we've heard time and time again is that, okay, there is no way to truly vet. Okay, there is no infrastructure over there to really vet. Okay, they're going to put, you know, some of their... Um, some of these bad people in the mix, as has already been identified in Europe, that many of these people have come in as refugees across the border. And this is how they've gotten in throughout Europe. And really, it's become a, you know, it's been a manifestation out there of all of this problem. And it's created all kinds of political problems, which, again, was the catalyst for. It's amazing how this one, I think this one problem, and I haven't heard anybody really say this, but I'm going to say it. I think this one problem we're talking about right now, today, at this very moment will actually be the cause and the destruction of what we're already seeing happen is the European Union, Jennifer Breeden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually completely agree with you. I wow. think Europe is up in arms. Now, for the first time, you're seeing France finally, after so many years, start to put surveillance on mosques that are preaching extremist ideologies. Yeah, yeah. And then people say, and then I know what's going to get you next. And you, you're obviously a common sense person. I mean, I like what I'm hearing. But here's the next big problem. Then when they start talking about all these things, as you've done, then the answer we hear back is all this m- malarkey. And it becomes, well, you can't say that. You can't do that. You're, you're, a, you're, again, a racist. You're a bigot. You're a this or that. You, it becomes very PC. So what and PC has become a cancer in this country. And it's become a real major talking point within the whole political sphere that if you are not willing to have open borders, which I am not, if you're willing to have just a total open refugee program where it doesn't matter, which I am not, if you don't really care about any of these things we're talking about because your life is going to be just fine, then, you know, uh, whatever, then, then you're an idiot. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. That's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. You'll find a whole host of shows and a lineup of great content back at AmericaOutloud.com. We have to be concerned with these things, Jennifer, because our life is at stake. We're in a whole new world order. Mm-hmm. And I think for the part of the political establishment to think, eh, which is why it was very hard for me to support a Clinton sort of approach where she was just really all fine and cool as a cucumber to have an open border. She didn't mm-hmm. want a wall. She didn't want a fence. She didn't want nothing. Mm-hmm. And there have already been examples on the northern border, too, not just the southern border, even the nor- northern border, the Veritas Project. You've seen what they did. Mm-hmm. They had people come in right into the museums in Cleveland and what have you with masks on their heads. Yep. 
Absolutely. Yes. And actually, we've, we've uh, talked about that a lot. The Clarion Project is there have been more terrorists that have come over from Canada, um, even than Mexico. You know, you've had some exactly. ties in Mexico, but a lot in Canada. Exactly. Because they know they can do it, Jennifer, and they know mm-hmm. they can get away with it. And they know. And here we are sitting here. I mean, I kind of think in a lot of ways, Jennifer, we're a little stupid at this point. I mean, I, th- I have to tell you, uh, it's just me to you right now. Mm-hmm. I think our politicians have done us. And this is no talking point. This is like. You know, they have sold us out. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about the entire political establishment. They mm-hmm. have really sold this country out. When I say that, it's heavy for me to say that because I'm not a conspiracy kind of guy. You understand? Oh, yes. So it's heavy for me to say that, Jennifer. But I really believe they let us down. When you see how vulnerable we are as a country, mm-hmm. this is a really big deal, folks. It really is. And I think one of the things that we've reported on, because you're absolutely right, and it only sounds heavy to say it when, when you know, it, it only sounds heavy for some when you don't understand the full extent of the threat, which many people do. You know, fortunately, people like you do, we see it. But what's happening is that, and something that Clary and our, our film By the Numbers really talked about, is that there's three different versions. So I'm just going to discuss two. There's jihadis. So there's this violent extremism we see with ISIS, and that's kind of the thing that we spend most of our time focused on. But then there's political Islamists. Those Those are people like the Muslim Brotherhood and the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S. These are groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations Care, who basically coined and made up the term Islamophobia and all this hate speech and things like that, which, by the way, hate speech, it's not good. It's terrible, but it is legal in the United States of America. That's what makes us who we are today. But because of what they've done, they come into the United States and their goal is to peacefully. And the Muslim Brotherhood has said this. The United States knows this is their goal is to peacefully get inside the United States and use our, quote, liberal values against us to strip us of our freedom of speech and to start to implement Sharia law. And so what happens is that as they start to, as the, you know, quote unquote, peaceful ones start to implement these things, call out Islamophobes and racists and bigots and yell and scream and all this kind of stuff. Their their goal is to get within the, the faces of our democracy, within our government, to run for office on both political parties. We've seen them come in now and to do that. And so they start to strip away these ideas. Then you get people like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and others saying, you know, open borders, 60,000 people come on in, whatever. Because they have these Muslim Brotherhood tied people advising them. Wow. I mean, it's it's a wow, Jennifer. And, you know, I, you surprised me today. I, I didn't expect all of this. I mean, I, I'm blown away from this conversation with you because I I didn't really know. I just knew from the talking points, I said, I'd really like to talk to this woman, you know, and uh, because she she's got the goods. She knows this is what she and and you've really surprised me. Well, that, that's good. I hope that's good. That's good. It's very good. I mean, I, I wouldn't. So now let me let me let me do this. This is going to be these next few minutes. Just bear with me a moment here now. Um, and let's see if I can bring some intelligence to what I want to say, which is never easy because I got to find the right words. We talk about being a Muslim, Jennifer. Now, I speak to experts experts out of Europe all the time about the Quran, about Muslim, about Islam. Uh, it's a big factor on our network. Uh, you all know that out there. Uh, we have, in fact, one of our contributors is an expert on the subject of, of Islam and Muslim, much more than me. I've learned a lot over the years, which I've shared with our listeners, Jennifer. But here's the thing. Back to, you mentioned a while ago, being a moderate Muslim. 
and or a peace-loving Muslim, and what does that mean? Now, let me walk through the steps here and tell me what you know versus what I know. Let's compare that, and let's understand, and I'm curious to where you come out on the other end to what I've been educated in now and what I understand, but listen, the Quran. If you read the Quran, okay, if you read the Quran, you only have to read from what I understand from experts again, just the first nine nine uh, chapters. That's all you, you don't need to read the whole Quran. The first nine will give you a, 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 a handle on what's really going on. Now, if you're Muslim and your your religion is, is Islam, are, are you with me so far, Jennifer? I am, I'm with you. And you're in your Islam and you're Muslim, then you're, you're, the Quran is your is your map, it's your roadmap, it's your GPS. Is it not your GPS, Jennifer? It is. It's, it's supposed to be. Yes. Now, so you and I agree. It's the GPS for the Muslim population. Now, the Quran. What is the Quran? Well, you know, again, it gets very political and religious. Everything they tell you not to talk about religion or politics. The two things I love to talk about. And, and you know, they say not to do that. Well, you know that what, Jennifer? I'm in trouble all the time then because I talk about these things, you know. Amen. And you look at all of this rather than push it under the carpet and, you know, which doesn't get us anywhere, actually. But, you know, we, we look at this, uh, you know, uh, um, and, and I say next. Um, so what is a moderate Muslim really? Does that mean and, and again, this is going to sound harsh, Jennifer, but mm-hmm. does that mean you only kill somebody half of the time? Do you chop their head off just 25 percent of the time? Do you think that Christians don't have a place in this world 10 percent of the time or 90 percent of the time? Oh, where does that fall? Because you know why? All of that is in the Quran. No, yeah. And and so that's one of the things, I think that's one of the biggest questions that's coming out now. And so what I can talk about is the moderate um, moderate Muslims, quote unquote, I'll use that term that you used. And so like I said, we try to give a platform to reformists. Reformists is a completely different thing than moderates. In fact, the reformists believe that there are no moderate Muslims, that if you follow the form of Islam as it is today, then um, then you're then you're an extremist at your very core. And so reformists, I like that word because it it, it brings up the idea of the 1500s and the Reformation when Martin Luther, when the Catholic Church was going on. Obviously, it wasn't as bad um, as we see it now with the jihadists, but it's that kind of thing. We need to change it. There's something that's a fundamental flaw. And I did speak about these types of verses um, that are in the Quran that you're referring to. I asked, um, I have asked the reformists that I work with about these things. So what do you say about these? Because I know they get that question. All right, all right. And it's the same, what what I was told, one, one, first, I was told that um, questions are good. And what's happened in societies, like especially high Muslim societies. You're talking again about 1.6 billion people that follow this um, religious idea, but they're told, especially by the extremists and the fundamentalists, they're told never question it because that means you don't have faith. They don't question it. They don't look into it. They don't even read the Quran. They don't know why it says what it says. And she says that's one thing that the reformists want to change is we need to question it. We need to question, you know, why this is in here. Is there a context to it and how it should be understood? And so what she says in some of those verses, there was a context to it. It was supposed to only be meant for what was happening in that very day as a defensive thing, but never to be used beyond that day. It was more of this revelation that had happened, but it was never to be understood as this is something you can always do beyond this. No, it was a time when people were living amongst themselves. There was really no rule of law in some of these governing areas. And it was if, you know, but it was supposed to be for that day in a defensive area. And now it's been 
taken out to mean that you can be defensive, quote unquote, um, for the rest of your life forever and ever. And that was never supposed to be it. And um, and so all these other teachings have come out of this. And so that's one of the things that, that they will say, which is that if you take anything out of it as meaning to, you know, that's what you're supposed to do beyond um, the Quran, then or, or beyond those days where Muhammad lived, if you take anything out of it as we need to continue this, you have now misinterpreted it and you are wrong and you're vi- you're violating, you know, what it says. Now, I'm not sitting here to argue for you know, Islam. I'm not Muslim. Um, you know, I never have been. I'm not thinking about that. My, my thing is, and, and I think this was the strongest argument, was that there are 1.6 billion followers of this religion. And so um, we to, to, to try to fight against those people, that's a very big number. Some of these people are not educated. They've been told never to question it, just to follow it blindly. And that depends on what forms they're reading. They're not, many of them, if you've read ISIS propaganda, they don't even quote the Quran. They're quoting hadiths that aren't even recognized. They're just quoting sayings of of people that randomly thought that they could write something years down the road. And so, you know, what we, we need to find is uh, something for the 1.6 billion people to turn to. And well, if all you've ever known. That is yes. so interesting. You've said some really interesting things there. And you know what? The fundamental flaw, I, that is really, uh, you really caught me with that. The, that, that they're saying, and, and you really caught me with this reformist. I haven't heard this before, Jennifer. So you've just taught me a couple of new things here, okay? The reformist and the fundamental flaws that they're saying do exist. But you see, what I've just talked about now is a tough topic, and I've just talked Mm -hmm. about the cancer within all of this, which you obviously are the adult in the room to be able to talk about all this because you're studying it and you truly understand it all. But I think that if we can get that, like you say, what do they turn to now? And I want you you to understand, it can't be the Quran, uh, because you've got to understand in the crux of it, folks. Here's the thing. If you go back in history and you understand where the Quran came from, and and listen, I'm not going to go down on my soapbox on this. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to tell you this. In my heart of hearts, I will tell you this, and, and, and I don't know if Jennifer will agree with me or not, but Muhammad hijacked the Bible. He hijacked the Old Testament and he created his own virgin version of what he thought. And he did a few things in there to try to, um, uh, how do I say, um, play favor with the Christian community early on. And But it was really all um, beyond that. It was... Uh, um, it was really very criminal what was happening here, what was going on. Now, uh, there are those who believe Muhammad is Jesus Christ, and vice there's a lot of argument there. And then there are those who believe that Allah is God, and I do not believe any of that is true. Allah is not God, and I don't believe Muhammad is Jesus Christ either or any part of this program. Now, what I just said is a mouthful, Jennifer, but the point is I'm trying to bring everyone's attention to understand where this Quran came from, okay? The mm-hmm. Quran, I mean, it goes back uh, thousands of years now, and it's the hijacking of this religion and this, uh, uh, this um, what do you want to call it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, this, this Quran document they put out there, which now is really feeding this 1.6, it, 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 it's corrupt in the world, this 1.6 billion, it's corrupt in the world. Uh, and, and you've now got all this hatred and, and racists and, 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 you know, uh, they want to kill everybody because they think they're going to, uh, they think it's an okay thing that they're going to um, uh, heaven somehow, or they're going to see Allah, their version of heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, what did I say that's wrong in all of that? Do you, you agree with any of that? You disagree with me? I, there are some things I agree and some things that I would just say, um, just to, to clarify, well, to, 
There's what there's one thing I'm going to leave alone, but it's for a funnier reason. But there are um, just to clarify too, and I think I think it's not some of these things like the 72 virgins and going to see Allah, dying as a martyr, right, um, right. all this kind of stuff. That's really not in the Quran. That is in those are in hadiths, and so there are three major um, studies uh, areas of studies in Islam. There's the Quran itself, the one book, and then there's the Sunnah, which is you know the mm-hmm. quote unquote uh, that's kind of what builds on Sharia law. Mm-hmm. The and then there's the hadith, and the hadith of the saints of Muhammad. Just to throw this out there, there are probably about a hundred thousand hadith, quote unquote, saints of Muhammad. To put it in a legal term, hadith sayings are hearsay within hearsay within hearsay. It's somebody that heard a wife of Muhammad say that the prophet said this. I mean, it, it's the most I'll ridiculous say this, Jennifer, form. But I'll say this. Listen to me. But mm-hmm. but but uh, uh, you know, ki- killing Christians is certainly in the Quran, and and mistreating women is also in the Quran. Yes. And, and so regarding those, and so I go back to the context, and that's what some of the reformists have talked about. And it's not to take any of those literally, because they look at the context of what was happening. So you're completely right that uh, Muhammad was raised around Christians. He was. The Council of Nicaea had just pieced the Bible together in 300-something AD, and Muhammad got his, res- you know, quote-unquote revelation in, in the 500s, 5 to 600s. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened. And being raised, living in a predominantly Christian area, he knew a lot of them. The, the fact is, when he first started to get it, and this is in the Quran, in the beginning of it, um, there is a, there's a whole section there where it says that he thought he was demon-possessed. When he, he was acting crazy, all kinds of things, um, and then, you know, he said, I'm demon-possessed, I'm feeling like I'm supposed to start writing this, I'm, I'm getting, you know, something from God. This is in the Quran, in the beginning. He says, something is wrong with me, I'm demon-possessed. His wife turned to him, um, one of his wives there at the Times turned to him and said, no, you're not demon-possessed, that's an angel from God, you need to write this. And, and really, that's they have that there in the beginning. I think there's more to that than we're even talking about right now. You know, of what happened at that time. Well, you give me that, such pause, demon possessed. Does everybody understand what that means? But then you you take that, Jennifer, and you equate that to what's going on in the world right now with ISIS, and it makes sense, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely I mean, come does. On, it's all demon possessed. Who the hell do you think's behind this all? Oh no, of course. And even the Christians in the Middle East understand that. My goodness, I met the I met the families of the martyrs, the twenty one martyrs that were beheaded for the whole world to see. Right. The first thing they said was like, These guys are obviously demon possessed and we just pray for their souls. It's terrifying. Right. See, that's it. And you you so get it with all of that. So having said all of that now, let me turn the page on this chapter. What an interesting conversation we're having, huh, Jennifer? Absolutely. I mean, we're speaking now with Jennifer. It's honest Brigham. dialogue, and I love it. That's what needs to happen. It's what dialogue? It's honest dialogue. Honest dialogue. What I call it, Jennifer, is the out loud truth. Yes. The out loud truth. So so let's let's remind folks, Jennifer Breeden, she's a legal analyst and attorney specializing in international criminal law and First Amendment laws. You can see how interesting the conversation is with her, folks. And again, there's a website. The website of the organization is what now? It is clarionproject.org. That's it, clarionproject.org. And you can, uh, there's a lot on there. I was on there uh, just yesterday, and uh, there's a whole lot of uh, great details and information on there. Uh, so go check that out as well. Uh, but um, so now back to where we're at right now, since we've got now Donald Trump coming in. So with everything we've talked about, Without going, I don't want to spend any time on the politicals. I do want to talk about these four areas that you said that he needs to focus on. I do want to touch on that and kind of wrap up our conversation or neat package on that, because that's kind of the crux to all of this. But before I do, I would say that what happened in this election and where we are right now, I mean, without getting all the political stuff in the election, which we're by now, we're past and we need to move forward. The results of this election and where we stand right now 
I would say you, looking back at everything, all things being equal, you believe the country now has a fair shot and chance to get this right. Um, I do. And I, you know, it's it makes me hopeful and I hope that we can come together. I've even seen, you know, a lot of Democrats and some of the most vehemently outspoken people against Donald Trump, um, even saying, recognizing the fact that, look, we need to come together. There's obviously something that the rest of us missed and we need to come together. And I think there is a chance to do that. You know, I was with uh, one of my colleagues. Both of us received phone calls from Trump's Trump advisors right after he won saying, look, we don't want just the mainstream people, you know, helping and advising um, the president elect. We want people that know what's going on. And so that actually right there, that's an action that gives me a lot of hope. Um, despite anybody's reservations about about Donald Trump, you know, that gives me hope that they are they are looking for the experts in the areas and not just the DC mainstream. Well, quite frankly, when you're in an election, there's a there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of hyperbole. There's just a lot of uh, it's all election chatter. You know, you say what you say, they say what they say to get elected, okay? Mm-hmm. I think the way Donald Trump had initially put it out there about the Muslims could have been put out a lot more eloquently, quite frankly, Jennifer, okay? And I think you would have calmed a lot of people rather than having this fear that happened, don't don't you think? I think so. I think so. But I also think that his his simplicity, be it that it's that it's, you know, might have been a little much, might have been a little wrong. I think the simplicity is what resonated, though, with Americans, because the truth is, I mean, there is a huge disconnect in those that just don't know what's going on. And we have a government now that refuses to talk about the issue, will not look at religion, which you it's absolutely crazy. have to do. It's crazy. even Muslims say you have to look at religion. I They're know. getting attacked by extremists. And so you have to look at what's going on. Well, if you're looking to make a little more room in your home or your office, or you're looking just to get a little more organized, I want to give you a solution today. Closetsbydesign.com. I've used them in past years. They do tremendous work. They build closets out, food pantries, garage, you know, shelving in the garages. Uh, They do flooring, wall beds, organizers, all kinds of things. Check them out, folks. Closetsbydesign.com. The four areas that President-elect Donald Trump needs to focus on when he's sworn in. Tell me what we need to do. What's the answer to all this? Solve the problem for me, Jennifer. What is it? Here we go. I'm about to solve it. No, I'm just kidding. The four main issues that I've said is, one, the Iran deal, two, reassuring our allies, three, dismantling the Muslim Brotherhood, and four, the Christian genocide issue. And so just to kind of unwrap those a little bit, you know, one, the Iran deal. There's been a lot of talk. This is the worst deal ever made. I was on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., fighting against this deal when it was being argued. And um, it is a horrible deal. He's completely right. Um, However, there needs to be a reasonable alternative. We need to figure out how he's going. You can't just scrap the deal. If you scrap the deal, um, that may speed up their new creation. We know that. You now have this Iranian and Russian alliance and Russia is probably having Iran you know, play, just play nice right now. And so we need to make sure that there is something that keeps Iran from building a new, because even though this didn't stop them, the Iran deal, it is it, it does hold them off a little longer than might have been expected. So if you scrap it, there's nothing for them to go against and they could speed up the process and have a nuke before we know it. Well, it's tricky. The whole Iran deal is going to become front and center at some point. I, I, I don't know in the first 100 days whether the administration is going to get with it. They have a lot on their plate. You know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, it's, absolutely. It's going to be on the fringes of that 100-day plan. I'm sure of that. There are mm-hmm. some other things in front there that they've got to get to. And one of the bigger things we're having, and the problem that makes that deal so complicated, Jennifer, mm-hmm. is the whole um, the whole uh, Syrian problem. The whole yes. Syrian problem and the, the entire refugee, refugee problem you and I have just been talking about. 
This is centered to the whole problem in conversation of where Iran is. And Iran, as you and I, will, I'm sure we're going to both agree, they really are a group of bad actors out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, They are picking up all the remnants of this situation, and they're looking to turn as much of this into a fuel for themselves, Jennifer. So all of this bad, uh, you know, the bad things we're talking about today, all of the evil and the destruction and, you know, the the uh, the genocide things we're talking about, this, this, this is just this is just fuel for the Iranians. I mean, this is this is they this is what they live and breathe absolutely and it's helping them and that's one thing that you know a a president-elect trump needs to be vigilant of and working with iran is that you know we're fighting isis right now but now the whole world has kind of turned to russia as being the leader in that fight against isis on the ground and so you know if trump wants to work with russia against isis or to solve the syrian problem that also means an implicit acceptance of the iranian regime and that's the bad actor that you talked about there because russia and iran are very big allies in that area iran wants their way in syria and in iraq and so we need to make sure that we know our policy, where we stand under a Trump administration, where the United States stands. And even if we work with Russia, to not falter on that, to not just give in to our values. Hey, we'll work with you up until this point. Well, I do believe and I have believed that we can work with Russia to the degree we can. And I, I do think we can. And I think Trump has made that clear that he plans sure. to. But by, but by alienating them and pushing them away, that's not mm-hmm. effective. No, not at all. And we don't want to do that. You know, we just need to know where we stand. Exactly. That's what the administration, the current administration has done that. Mm -hmm. And they pushed them away. I haven't seen Russia so far away from us now since before the Reagan days. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is that as we pushed them away, their presence in that region has grown. They've become the one because even if you want to to isolate yourself, the truth is that all of those countries, they, they need a global hegemonic system. They understand that there needs to be one power that they look to as they've stopped looking to the United States because we've isolated from Russia and everything else. Um, they've looked towards Russia. They've looked towards some of these other powers. I mean, they need the help. They don't know what's going on. They don't have the systems of governance that, that we do. And so, yes, of course, we have to work with them now. That's what we have to face. And we just need to know where we stand. Look, we're going to work with you. We're going to help you. We're not going to isolate you. But we need to ensure that the Iranian regime doesn't infiltrate completely Syria and Iraq. You know, there's a lot of people there. There's a large tapestry of people and they need to be treated right. Iran is hurting their own civilians. They've been doing that for years. That's right. That's right. You know, when you say dismantling the Muslim Brotherhood, I mean, you know, in, in the in the moment or two, he had to tell you, you know, there's been an awful lot of conversation that we've had and looked at as well and proof, Jennifer, that mm-hmm. the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, that there are pieces of it uh, that have been that have been bought right into the Obama administration that are in positions of power in Washington. You, you've heard that as well. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there some of the Muslim Brotherhood tied people have actually written the United States countering violent extremism mandate that all of our law enforcement agencies have to follow. Isn't that mind blowing? I mean, what are we doing here, Jennifer? Exactly. You know, yeah. I've said years ago, and, and folks, I want you to hear me, and I think Jennifer will probably agree with me, but here's what I'll say to you. The danger we have moving forward now from 2016 forward is not outsiders. It's not other country. It's not our, It's not going to be our biggest problem. Our biggest problem in America, in the United States of America, is from within we are our own cancer and our own problems. And until we get that understood and understood we've become a cancer inside of ourselves, we're going we're gonna to undo ourselves from the inside out. Do you agree with that, Jennifer? 
I completely do. And I think they have the, the thing with the Muslim Brotherhood, because sometimes we look at these guys as just Middle Easterners. They can't possibly know what we know. We just right. know more. They're actually extremely brilliant. The Muslim Brotherhood has been around forever for the last 30 years. They've been planning the destruction of America for the last 100 years. And 30 years ago, we got their plans for America. We know them and we've still ignored that. They've not only put put their own players and their tied people within the U.S. government, but they're all over state governments, local governments, both political parties and they have numerous front organizations so we're so with what Jennifer has just spelled out right now should give everybody a big pause I mean you should just really take a deep breath right now and hear what she just said replay it back and hear what she just said because that's 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 a problem it that's that's what's happened now what she's saying is that cancer has spread it has spread throughout the body and it's spread in all of these various limbs of our society, you see. Mm-hmm. And that is really a problem. So what we've got to do now is we've got to stop the hurting. We've got to secure our, our, our borders and our systems and our governments. That's why people were so nervous. Now, folks, do you understand why so many people were so nervous about a Donald Trump presidency? <laughs> why do you think they were nervous? Because this guy, Jennifer Breeden, knows why. Malcolm Aloud knows why. Because this guy was going to get in and he was going to do this. He was going to get into the canoe and he was going to tip it a bit over. Left, right, center. He's going to tip the canoe over. And guess what? They don't want the canoe tipped over, Jennifer. Right? No. They don't. And uh, they don't want the canoe to Dover. And I think the United States of America just sent a very loud message with this election to those sources Amen. like the Muslim Brotherhood. Amen. We just sent a very loud message that we are not asleep yet. We've been falling asleep, but we're not done yet. We're ta- it, took the, it was one of those it was one of those moments in our history where it took the country back and it says, you know what? You damn right. We're going to stand up for what's right. And you're damn right. We don't care if you like our PC conversation or not. And you're damn right. We're proud to be in an America that was founded by immigrants, legal immigrants. We understand all of that and we're proud of it. And we're not going to go down this path uh, that the extremists in the liberal progressiveness movement has uh, seen. It's like their business as usual for them. Like, what's the matter for you? Can't you? Exactly. We're not going to buy into that. It's that simple. Hey, what's the film that you did at the Clarion Project? There's a film there that folks might watch, is it? Yes, there's uh, many films we've done. You can go to our website at clarionproject.org and see a lot of the films. One of the most recent ones was Honor Diaries about women who have been victims of honor crimes and honor killings. It's actually sparked um, an international women's film festival for women that can't speak or, or do anything. Our next film coming out will be called Faith Keepers, about the genocide of Christians and minorities in the Middle East. It's coming out at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I mean, it is such a privilege to have you here with me and a privilege to get to know you today. I'm, I'm just so um, uh, pleased, impressed that there at the Clarion Project that you so get it and you're on top of it. You understand the problems, the systems, the situations, and providing some direction and really shining a light on these things. And for that, I'm very, very grateful, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for your show. I'm grateful for Malcolm Out Loud and just truth being spoken. Well, and I can't really top that, friends, but I'll tell you what, when you again look at the platform and you look at the things we're doing at America Out Loud, bringing the voices on like Jennifer are so important to us. If you didn't know anything about this before the show today, you know a lot about it right now, friends, and that's the magic of this show. 